I have used a lot of commerce platforms in the past. By far, the most robust is Shopify. No matter how complex your business needs and no matter how large your business grows, Shopify can handle it. And they do handle it for brands like Rothy's, Ruggable, Allbirds, Knox, Magnolia, Brooklinen, Glossier, and Cotton, to name a few. You may already use another e-commerce platform and you may be super unhappy with it, but you've already put a lot of work into it and migrating to Shopify could seem impossible. But I'm here to tell you that it is quite easy. When I migrated to Shopify back in 2022, their apps and tools meant I just had to make a few clicks and everything was ported over as if by magic. Shopify also lets you design your storefront however you like, which from personal experience I know isn't the case for many other commerce platforms out there. All these features and all this control can result in more sales more often. So stop leaving sales on the table, switch your business to Shopify today, and discover why millions trust Shopify as their all-in-one commerce platform to build, grow, and run their businesses. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial at shopify.com forward slash practical, all lowercase. That's one month for just $1 at shopify.com forward slash practical, shopify.com forward slash practical. Good morning, Prakaptan. Are you blushing? Have you ever blushed? Have you no modesty? I'm kidding, but we will be talking about blushing in today's episode. Before that, though, let me share something exciting with you. Starting in September, we're going to change our Wednesday lineup a bit. I know, I know, Tanner, how many changes to the lineup can you make in just two weeks? I hope it's not too frustrating, but zeroing in on what people like and want more of is one of those data-centric things, and it takes a long time to collect data and make sense of it. But here's an example of a piece of data we absolutely hated to discover. Our Wednesday episodes have an average completion rate of 50%. Ouch. But our Monday and Tuesday episodes, nearly 100%. We can't really ignore that data, can we? No, of course not. So Wednesdays are no longer for deep dives. Deep dives instead will be moved over to our monthly live events, which you can choose to attend or not at actualstoicism.com. From now on, on Wednesdays, we'll be sharing, drumroll please, Epictetus's Enchiridion which feels long overdue. We've also made a change to the mailbag, which you've probably already heard of, but I record these episodes very far in advance now, so sometimes I forget what I've already talked about. But instead of mailbag, we're calling it listener letters, and instead of six questions in an episode, we're going to reduce it to three so we can go a bit deeper into exploring the questions submitted, and the whole listening experience can feel a bit less overwhelming and, let's be honest, rushed. All right, that's it for announcements. Today's letter is from Seneca. Who else would it be from? Who else is writing us letters? It's his 11th, and it's titled On the Blush of Modesty. Here it is. Your friend and I have had a conversation. He is a man of ability. His very first words showed what spirit and understanding he possesses and what progress he has already made. He gave me a foretaste and he will not fail to answer thereto, for he spoke not from forethought, but was suddenly caught off his guard. 
When he tried to collect himself, he could scarcely banish that hue of modesty, which is a good sign in a young man. The blush that spread over his face seemed so to rise from the depths, and I feel sure that his habit of blushing will stay with him after he has strengthened his character, stripped off all his faults, and become wise. For by no wisdom can natural weaknesses of the body be removed. That which is implanted and inborn can be toned down by training, but not overcome. The steadiest speaker, when before the public, often breaks into perspiration, as if he had wearied or overheated himself. Some tremble in the knees when they rise to speak. I know of some whose teeth chatter, whose tongues falter, whose lips quiver. Training and experience can never shake off this habit. Nature exerts her own power and through such a weakness makes her presence known even to the strongest. I know that the blush, too, is a habit of this sort, spreading suddenly over the faces of the most dignified men. It is, indeed, more prevalent in youth because of the warmer blood and the sensitive countenance. Nevertheless, both seasoned men and aged men are affected by it. Some are most dangerous when they redden, as if they were letting all their sense of shame escape. Sula, when the blood mantled his cheeks, was in his fiercest mood. Pompey had the most sensitive cast of countenance. He always blushed in the presence of a gathering, and especially at a public assembly. Fabianus also, I remember, reddened when he appeared as a witness before the state, and his embarrassment became him to a remarkable degree. Such a habit is not due to mental weakness, but to the novelty of a situation. An inexperienced person is not necessarily confused, but is usually affected because he slips into this habit by natural tendency of the body. Just as certain men are full-blooded, so others are of a quick and mobile blood that rushes to the face all at once. As I remarked, wisdom can never remove this habit for if she could rub out all our faults, she would be mistress of the universe. Whatever is assigned to us by the terms of our birth and the blend in our constitutions will stick with us, no matter how hard or how long the soul may have tried to master itself. And we cannot forbid these feelings any more than we can summon them. Actors in the theater who imitate the emotions, who portray fear and nervousness, who depict sorrow, imitate bashfulness by hanging their heads, lowering their voices, and keeping their eyes fixed and rooted upon the ground. They cannot, however, muster a blush, for the blush cannot be prevented or acquired. Wisdom will not assure us of a remedy or give us help against it. It comes or goes unbidden, and is a law unto itself. But my letter calls for its closing sentence. Hear and take to heart this useful and wholesome motto. Cherish some man of high character, and keep him ever before your eyes, living as if he were watching you, and ordering all your actions as if he beheld them. Such, my dear Lucilius, is the counsel of Epicurus. He has quite properly given us a guardian and an attendant. 
We can get rid of most sins if we have a witness who stands near us when we are likely to go wrong. The soul should have someone whom it can respect, one by whose authority it may make even its inner shrine more hallowed. Happy is the man who can make others better, not merely when he is in their company, but even when he is in their thoughts alone. And happy also is he who can so revere a man as to calm and regulate himself by calling him to mind. One who can so revere another will soon be himself worthy of reverence. Choose, therefore, a Cato, or, if Cato seems too severe a model, choose some Laelius, a gentler spirit. Choose a master whose life, conversation, and soul-expressing face have satisfied you. Picture him always to yourself as your protector or your pattern. For we must indeed have someone according to whom we may regulate our characters. You can never straighten that which is crooked unless you use a ruler. I want to start with what I consider to be the most interesting part of this letter, and that is, quote, For by no wisdom can natural weaknesses of the body be removed. End quote. Even the sage, a human being of virtuous character, according to Seneca here, cannot banish from him or herself the proto-passions. So does this mean a sage can feel anger? fear, etc.? Is that what Seneca is saying? I don't think so. A proto-passion is like a rising in the body, whereas a passion is something we decide ourselves into. Likewise, a reflex is a function of the body we exist in, which is what blushing is. It isn't something our rational faculty has control over any more than it does the flow of blood resulting from a cut or scrape. Blushing isn't embarrassment. Embarrassment is an emotion we reason ourselves to. But I think this is hard to untangle because when have you ever blushed and not been embarrassed? I don't have fully developed thoughts on this yet, but I wonder if, since a sage can blush and blushing seems uniquely linked to embarrassment, that embarrassment might not be a pathé or a passion at all, but a virtuous emotional state in the same way that joy is. Now, maybe that sounds insane to some of you. So why am I thinking this? And by the way, I'm not saying I'm right. I'm just thinking it. The answer is, I don't know why I'm saying it. I don't know why I feel it, but I'll say more on it and I'll do some out loud thinking. When someone says very nice things of me in front of other people, I might blush. Why am I blushing? Surely because I am embarrassed. But what does that mean? I think embarrassment is a feeling of discomfort linked to external attention of any kind. I think that means I'm saying embarrassment is the natural response to our veil of modesty being cast aside by a situation or person. I think it is the response of being suddenly naked in front of others, metaphorically, of course. Is that appropriate? I don't know. Is the sage meant to be modest? 
I believe so. Is modesty tied to temperance? I think it might be. If it is, I return to my original question to reform it. Is it appropriate to feel discomfort when a person, situation, or compliment makes transparent our veil of temperance? When someone negates our modesty or temperance by, for example, saying things about us that we would never say as modest individuals, is the proper, appropriate response to feel discomfort and therefore blush. I'm thinking maybe, but I'm not smart enough to articulate why I think I'm right about that. I feel that a sage should feel discomfort when someone takes a pair of x-ray glasses to their modesty, but I'm not sure why I feel that way. And again, I don't know that I'm right, I just feel like maybe I might be. I wonder if you have thoughts on this, though. Why don't you pop into the Discord and let me know if you have some. Help me come to a conclusion on this particular thing. The second bit of this letter that I find interesting, or at least valuable to talk about, is the topic of accountability. We've heard Seneca say before that it's important to envision a person you're afraid to disappoint. To imagine that they're watching over your every action. This isn't a particularly foreign concept. In fact, in almost every religion, major or minor, we're asked to remember that the decider of our mortal souls is tallying up all our deeds and watching our every move. Yahweh, Allah, Anubis, Zeus, someone is making a list and checking it, once and then condemning you to somewhere usually bad. So you should imagine that they're watching you at every moment, modify your behavior accordingly, and maybe just, maybe, you won't be eaten by Amit, which, if memory serves, was a hippo-crocodile-lion hybrid that ate untruthful hearts, which is terrifying ancient Egyptians, just for the record. Absolutely terrifying. So, again, not that odd in antiquity to think someone is watching me at all times and I should adjust my behavior to keep myself safe from harm. But Stoicism, and certainly many other non religious philosophies for living, suggests not that there's a punishment for being a crappy person, rather, that there's a significant detriment to our characters when we are crappy people. In imagining role models looking over us, we are not looking to satisfy them as we would look to satisfy an almighty creator, which commonly perverts the reasons we choose to behave well, in my opinion. Rather, we are leveraging their imagined judgment as a way of benefiting ourselves because our God, so to speak, is a morally upright and appropriate character, not the approval of anything external or supernatural. But we're seeking the approval of the person we envision, aren't we? You might ask. No, we're leveraging the idea of them to reframe our mental state and ask whether we approve of ourselves. There's a big difference between being good because someone is watching us and being good because the idea of someone watching us reminds us that we want to be good. 
Of course, this hinges on wanting to be good, on wanting to have a good character, which hinges on thinking that's a valuable thing to develop in the first place. It's probably the case that in antiquity, pre-Christianity, there were probably not that many people willing to get on board with being good solely for the sake of having a good character. That's probably part of why most religions threaten you with hell. And that's a different conversation altogether, a different podcast too, probably, but maybe worth thinking about. For today, though, that's all I've got. If you've got thoughts or responses to this episode, please jump into our Discord community and share them. I would love to hear them. I'd like to thank our volunteer writing team for helping me to shape and direct today's script. Thank you to John K., Selena G., Eric D., and JCK, our volunteer writers who helped to develop the script for today's episode. Thanks again for listening. I appreciate you, and until next time, take care.